So for several weeks now, I've been greatly anticipating getting into this study with you throughout the summer because I know this is a subject that is going to really, I think, um, punch a lot of buttons for us. <laughs> we have a lot of, all of us in this world, as we live our lives, we all in, inevitably engage in some situation, some relationship gets um, bent or <laughs> somehow sideways and we have conflict and we have uh, attitudes and difficult cop, uh, cop, uh, situations develop as a result. And I think what happens is uh, we often forget the biblical perspective on how we as Christians conduct ourselves in times of conflict. And so I expect this, pro- this is a situation, this, this series is going to be a, a class that is intensely personal. We want it to be that way. We want it to be a, uh, a class that meets challenges in your life and, exp- and help you move through growth and change in response to these personal challenges of conflict. I hope it also be practical. So not only personal, but practical as well, that if you're a Christian and you're listening to these series of messages, you're going to be convicted to change, to practice these things you hear, not to be hearers, but to be doers who act, as James would say, upon these things. So uh, as I said, it's, it's one thing to hear these things and have a mental affirmation of that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. That's true. But then to put it into an act, enact it and put it into practice is another matter altogether. So we want to focus on that in this class as well. I also think it will not be uh, practical and personal. It will also be pertinent, meaning that it's going to have bearing on every relationship that you have. Every single relationship in your life will be a, has implications for changes that we make as Christians and how we relate to our home, our family, our workplace, all of life, really. And then lastly, I want to make sure that it's profitable for you in the sense that I think that's the aim of all biblical teaching, really, that it's profitably profitable to you, that it, it, it brings about growth and maturity and Christ-likeness. But more precisely, I think these, these teachings I hope will be useful in helping you to produce righteousness in times of pressure, when it's difficult, when you're provoked and you are challenged to respond in a Christ-like way, that you will have tools and equipping now that will help you produce righteousness in situations that are tense and difficult to respond. And to, to, as James will put it here in James chapter 3, to sow, seeds of, to sow seeds of peace when the fiery interchanges of personal conflict are trying to burn the whole field down, you're sowing seeds of peace. And I do think that this series is going to be, I think, somewhat provocative as well in that I expect that there's going to be some intense emotional feedback that comes from you in response to these principles because... Every scriptural principle that you're going to hear for the next 13 weeks, almost every single one of them, is going to seem to you so illogical, so unnatural, and so self-denying, so counterintuitive, and so against common sense that you're going to think, this can't be biblical wisdom. This is certainly not how I, I desire to act, how I want to respond, how I want to react to that situation that's taking place. And you're going to think the men up here are trying to teach you to do something foolish. And you're going to have a hard time receiving their biblical counsel to you as biblical wisdom. And I think that's because um, the scriptures are are so paradoxical in their teaching of how do we respond to conflict that it's going to require a massive change in our thinking and our, our understanding. You know, we all have a predisposition, a predisposition to reject biblical wisdom. And the Bible tells us that we are all predisposed to reject what the Bible says about 
about how to respond to conflict. It tells us that we are presumptive and that we, we, we lean on our own understanding of things. We, we think we have an understanding of the situation. We know what's wrong. We know what someone should do to make it right. We have this preconception, this pre presumption that uh, our understanding is perfect in, this, in these circumstances. And that's one thing you're going to find out as we go through the teaching class. I don't think you're going to get simple answers all the time for, for difficult, complex conflicts. That's not the intention of the class. We're not going to give you simple, pithy answers, okay? But we're going to give you principles that are grounded in Scripture that are going to guide your thinking and your responses. So don't presume on your own understanding. The Bible constantly tells us this, that in Proverbs chapter 14, 12, says, There is a way that seemeth right to a man, but the end thereof is the ways of death, right? So there's a way that seems right to a man, and then there is the right way. So we want to be careful we don't enter into the way that seems right, but we actually understand the way that is right in a path, in a, in a situation where we're trying to solve conflict, is the biblical path. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15 says, the way of a fool is, is right in his own eyes. See, we're all predisposed to lean on our own conception and our understanding of the situation. And what's needed in every conflict is a recalibration, a refocusing of what the problems really are, and a really understanding from God's perspective what his assessment of the situation really is. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7 says, Trust the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. Right? And it goes on to say in verse 7, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So we're not to count our own wisdom to count our own experience, our background with individuals, and say, you know what, this is their character, this is their characteristics, this is how, this is how they've always been, there won't be any change, and we start to develop this paradigm of the conflict situation, and we lean on our own wisdom, rather than coming back and recalibrating to scripture. So, one of the things, one of the dangers we see here is a presumption upon our own understanding. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul warns the Corinthian church about the tendency to rely on our own wisdom and human in a human wisdom. He says here, 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 20, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool in order that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So there are things that come to you with the appearance, appearance of wisdom, things, responses that seem to be justifiable in your, in your thinking, in your estimation of how you should respond. And in reality, what you, what you need to become aware of is that those things are indeed foolish. So I, I think you're going to hear a lot of things that you thought were true or you're going to think are pro appropriate as a, a fitting response to, to conflict that you're going to find biblically to respond that way is foolishness. And so this, this will be a jarring series, I think, for some of us. There's not only that, a presumption upon our own understanding, there's also a preconception about what pursuing peace entails. What I mean by that is, when I say you should be a pursuer of peace, people usually think of that in terms of, oh, you're telling me I have to compromise. You're telling me I have to accommodate or make concessions or just give up on things or to surrender something important to me. And I should just let somebody have what's not rightfully theirs. Sometimes people think that's what peace is, just surrender. And that's not what peace is, biblically. Okay, peace doesn't mean that you have to be a doormat for Jesus. 
that you have to be a punching bag and just let, let roll with the punches. In fact, uh, to b- pursue biblical peace is not a resignation to a life just live, just allowing everyone to sin against you without any recourse. Rather, being a peacemaker is about pursuing righteous responses, righteous responses that glorify God and do good to those who oppose you. If there's anything distinctive about how a Christian faces opposition, it is exactly that. We don't retaliate, we don't return evil for evil, but we return good for evil, right? We do things that desire to please God in the conflict and to respond in ways that bring blessing to those who oppose us. Boy, so easy to preach that and teach that and even to mentally affirm that. But to practice it is a whole other world, isn't it? But this is what it means. In fact, this is going to be the sine qua non, the, 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 the signature of what I think a Christian is, is someone who responds to those who sin against him in ways that are Christ-like. How did Christ respond to those who put him on the cross? How did he respond to those who mistreated him and dealt um, violently with him? He responded to them in a tremendously gracious and merciful way. Was he, a, was he simply laying down and letting them take advantage of him? Absolutely not. What he was doing was for their good and for their blessing, ultimately. And even though he was absorbing their evil, he was returning the, the greatest good to those who would believe him and trust him by faith. So keep that in mind. It sounds great in theory, difficult in practice, recognizing that, yet this is what being a, pers- a peacemaker is. It's not about just laying down and compromising and making concessions. In fact, it's a mistake to think of a peacemaker as someone who has no heart to fight. In fact, to avoid the conflict usually makes the conflict worse. It really does. So as a peacemaker, it seems paradoxical, but we fight, and we fight for peace. We fight hard for biblical peace. And we're going to talk about what that entails, I think, in chapter 2. I think, uh, I'm not sure, but I think maybe, Mark, you might be dealing with chapter 2 there, talking about dealing, how to fight for peace. In fact, if you want a good introduction to that, Lou Priolo just taught a great uh, session on how to fight back without getting even in our last Truth and Light conference. Excellent treatment of this very thing. Okay, How to pursue peace without seeking vengeance, without devolving into uh, human wisdom, as we'll talk about. Okay, So there's a preconception about what per- peace entails, and that prevents us from understanding what it means, uh, what biblical wisdom should be about how we respond. There's also a predetermination to protect your own interests. We're wired this way. We want to protect what's valuable and important to us, and we will stand to the, to the last breath in fighting for that. Um, the natural response when you have been attacked is a center on your own interests, what matters most to you, and to become protective and defensive about what is precious to you. Uh, the challenge is that your hearts will then begin to grow cold and begin to become unloving, and increasingly more self-engrossed. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, it says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, I'm not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many that they may be saved. Do you know your conflict situation 
could actually be a gospel opportunity. One of the, one of the things that next week um, we're going to discuss is how conflicts bring opportunities. To see those opportunities, not to see them as something to shirk back from or to run away from, but to seize upon them as opportunities to present Christ and the truths, the central truths of the gospel are, easy, are more manifest in those responses to that situation. So, um, don't be predetermined to protect your own interests. The Bible tells us do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that in humility we should count others more significant than ourselves. Let not each of you look upon his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we're looking at these four predispositions to reject biblical counsel. This is something that we're fighting against this morning and throughout the rest of the series. We're actually going to try to go cross-grain of your natural disposition. I mean, you're gonna, we're going to fight against the human natural responses of conflict. You're going to have to learn how to put an interrupt in your immediate reactions. You cannot be a man of reaction. Okay? You've got to be a man of action. You've got to take a deliberate approach to how you respond to conflict biblically. You have to slow the process of your thinking down in your response and say, I need to make sure whatever I do, it's God glorifying, Christ exalting, and it does others the maximum good in what I do and say. Okay? So, fourthly, there's a pretense about being more righteous than what you actually are. Actually are. Um, I have to, I'm going to give Mark credit for this one. This, Mark helped me understand this. He, said, he, he would say things like, um, in conflicts, we did a conflict. Remember we did this marriage and family counseling training you did with us? And he says, you're never, something like this, correct me if I'm not getting this wrong. He says, you're never as righteous. He's, basically, he says something about, um, you're only as righteous as your treatment of your spouse. You don't love God here on one side of things and you have this great relationship with God and have this horrible relationship with your spouse. You're not some spiritual giant over here and have a mistreatment with others on the human horizontal plane, okay? <laughs> uh, something, he said it so much more pithier than I said just now, but the idea being that, that you, are, you misconceive yourself, you misperceive yourself to be more spiritual than you really are because what you really are is what you are in the conflict. The conflict exposes the real state of your spiritual maturity. Okay, um, what happens is someone might find biblical wisdom that we're going to present here reprehensible because their assessment of themselves is that, well, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm, 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 I'm upright. I'm righteous in this position I've taken, and I'm, I'm, my response is pure and right. And they've got a skewed perspective of themselves or a skewed perspective of their opponent. Uh, what people find most difficult, I think, in conflict is that they need to come to terms with what God assesses them to be and how God sees their opponent and to give up this arrogant flattery of ourselves that we carry with us which blinds us to the truth to see conflict as God sees it who you really are and what you really are is revealed under pressure and when pressure comes that exposes exactly what you what you really are all your pious preaching and teaching and language that you use to try to impress others as to your spiritual state all goes out the window and what gets exposed is the nerve of who you really are. So, um, and you'll, you'll find out who you really are when, in times when you don't get your own way and when you don't receive the treatment you desire. We'll see how Christ-like you really are. I'm not provoking, I'm not trying to poke you in the chest, I'm just trying to illustri illustrate for you 
exactly what, what's entailed in this, okay? So we're not trying to get by with just some pious preaching and teaching here. We're trying to ex- help us understand these are, we're already oriented in the direction away from uh, biblical wisdom. There's also here, I think James is, is very clear. One other predisposition is that we often have people in our lives or we may ourselves may be guilty of professing a faith that is practically dead. If there's one thing I hope that will come out of this series is that maybe at some point you will give some, some, some serious thought to if your responses are consistently self, self-focused and self-protecting and vicious toward others, if you're constantly in that, pers- in that state, it may give evidence to you that you really don't have a living faith, a real faith. You may, in fact, have a faith without works, a professed faith in Christ, but an inability to practice what is in harmony with that faith. And so you have a, practiced, a professed faith that's practically dead. Um, it may seem that you'll hear counsel over the next weeks that doesn't seem to settle with you. You say, man, I just can't get behind that. I don't understand it. I think that's wrong. And it's going to be because you are mentally assenting to a faith, the scripture's teaching, but you don't practice or can't practice. And if that's the faith, if that's the case, you probably have a faith that's orthodox, right in its conception, but anathema in its practice. The demons have that kind of faith, James tells us. The James, the James tells us that the demons understand, have a, have a good theology of God. They understand who God is, his existence, and all of his attributes, and they understand what, what the gospel and the ins and outs of that for sure, but does not impact the way they respond other than they shudder, at least they shudder, but it does not change their outward works. And so he says one of those things, one of the possibilities is we can profess a faith that is no better than that of demons. So if you tend to respond antagonistically or mercilessly to those who are in a dispute with you, you should pause and consider whether or not what that really means. Does that mean that you have a living relationship with the gospel? Do you have an understanding of how that, impli- how that implication changes your responses to, these, to people around you? If you really understand grace and forgiveness and mercy and all these things that God brought to you in the cross, how is it that you have missed the connection that that's your mission to extend to others who offend you? So each week, these men are going to open some texts of scripture. They're going to seek to call you to repentance. They're going to ask you to choose a better path. They're going to ask you to adopt a biblical perspective. They're going to ask you to operate according to godly wisdom and not earthly wisdom, to adjust your attitude, to subdue your desires. In short, to do these things as a way of sowing seeds of peace that we hope will bring forth a harvest of righteousness. And that's why we turn to James chapter 3, verse 13. Um, I love this text. James chapter 3, it's, uh, verse 13, it says this. Pardon me, I have not quite gotten there. There it is. Who among you is wise and understanding? I, I love this. James prompts us with a question. Who is wise among you? Who really is wise? Who's understanding? Will let him show by his good behavior his deeds in gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first, listen to this, 
pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness. I love this verse. And this seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peacemakers sow seeds of peace that will reap a harvest of righteousness. So, um, James is full of wisdom when it comes to dealing with Christians in conflict. He begins writing about the testing of our faith in chapter 1. He's talking about the fruit that the test of faith produces. Uh, He encourages believers to seek the wisdom from God um, who gives it generously to those who ask it from him. Doubting wisdom, he says, will lead to double-mindedness and instability in all areas of your life. His emphasis is not just upon hearing the words of wisdom from God and then forgetting them like someone who looks into a mirror and then walks away and forgets what manner of man he was, but upon a doer who acts, who listens to the words of God and then seeks to apply them. The word of God is not just a theoretical thing. It's a practical thing. It's impossible to deal with conflict without discussing communication. So James talks about in the early part of chapter 3 all about the tongue and its evils and its dangers. And he says, when you, when you talk about the, when you get ready to talk about conflict, you've got to be careful of the nature of your tongue. He says, he goes even so far to say, if anyone thinks he's religious, if anyone thinks he's religious but does not bridle his tongue, his religion is useless. Wow. Well, like, it doesn't matter what you say. If you, if you can't control your tongue, that's a better, it's a better revealer of what you really are. So, keeping all this in mind, James is trying to help us understand how Christians respond in conflict. In in chapter 2, James ties together the connection between faith and works, that works produce, come out of faith. They just, they result from faith. True faith will show up, I put it this way, what you believe comes out in your behavior. What you really believe comes out in your behavior. It doesn't really come out from your doctrinal statement that you have formulated and written up and professed. It comes out in your behavior. Your conduct reveals your creed. How you respond shows, you, shows whether or not you indeed believe the gospel. Okay. If, Christian, if the Christian faith elevates the virtue of love, how can a Christian turn away a brother or sister in need, he says in chapter 2. James' point is that our faith is not disconnected from works as though there was some higher wisdom to which we ascribe that has no relationship with practical matters. No, our faith is demonstrated by practical works. And the accord with the faith is, and it's demonstrated that faith is actually living in us. It's active. It's changing us. So there are three tests. There are three tests embedded in every conflict. So next time you are faced with a a difficult situation, know this. James is going to tell you in the next... six verses. There are three tests going on that time. God's interested in testing your faith. The C, number one, is it authentic? Is it genuine? Is it theoretical or is it practical? Do you have just a theoretical faith? Or is it time to be a Christian and fight like a Christian? (laughs) If that makes any sense. Okay? We're going to solve conflicts like Christians solve conflicts. That's the point. There's supposed to be an obvious and apparent difference between how real Christians and pretend Christians react to conflicts. There's supposed to be among us wise people who God, had through, through walking with the Lord and having wisdom of experience and walking with him, 
can help us take scriptural passages like this and apply it to our scenarios, each individual situation, and help us practice this godly wisdom. It says here in chapter 3, verse 13, Who among you is wise and understanding? Who is it? Among this class, there are those who I think have gifts to help us seek peace. If we have estranged relationships with our family, with our spouse, with our children, with our other church members, with our co-workers, within, within this room, God has gifted people with um, biblical wisdom to help you seek peace. Um, Paul asked this question, same question to the Corinthian church. First 1 Corinthians 6, he says, um, you know what, it's a shame that the saints will judge the world, and they're going to judge angels, but they can't seem to judge the matters between their brothers and their sisters. That's shameful. Brothers, we, sisters, we have the scriptures that help us discern these matters. I know they're difficult and complex, but someone with a, someone with some walk, with a walk with God and a, a purity of, of heart and purpose can help us discern these, these difficult issues. Fortunately, most Christians first appeal too often to the accepted wisdom of this world and not to the wisdom that comes from God. In any matter of dispute... The question about who is really wise and understanding is foremost. Who's really got the, the right take on this situation? Conflicts sound like the Bible tells us that the first to present his case seems right until another comes to, to examine him. The first person you hear is like, wow, that sounds like, man, you've got a good case there. And then you hear the other side, sort of, wow, you know, that's not what I thought this was. You know, <laughs> It's difficult. You wade into situations like that all the time. And the question is, who is wise and understanding comes up. And James says, you know who's wise and understanding? It's the one who demonstrates his behavior is controlled by the Spirit of God. And his, his, his behavior seeks to model the wisdom of the Word of God. His decisions and his responses and his interactions, his thinking, his resolve, is all seeking to al align with the revealed wisdom of, of God's Word. And when they're unclear on how to proceed, they look to spiritual leaders and, and helps. Friends who are trusted, who can tell them the truth that they don't want to hear sometimes from the word of God. So is your faith real? Is it theoretical or is it, or is it practical? Okay. Second test, is your motivation polluted by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition? In other words, what's the motivation behind your conflict? You'll never, James is gonna zero in on the heart what is going on inside your heart? What are you so lustful for? What do you so desire? What are you so willing to destroy a relationship over? What are you so willing to ruin your, your whole testimony over that you're willing to sin to get that, that thing? Okay? The motivation being polluted by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. James applies this test not just to your conduct, but to your heart. So it doesn't matter how you've responded as much as it's, it does matter how you respond, but the response is only the manifestation of something going on much deeper down in the heart. Um, one's outward conduct can be observed by all, but these kinds of motivations are often unseen and they evade discernment. Sometimes it's even imperceptible to our own, to ourselves. What is motivating my action there? What, I don't even know that myself. And someone some time in the scriptures are needed to discern those things. What is, what is operative in the heart that's provoking these reactions? He said, James warns us, and, and if you look here in chapter 3, verse um, thir 14, he says, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, he warns us, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. 
these motivations lead us to arrogance. Uh, arrogance that comes from these selfish motivations incubates and allow, allows us to insulate our true motivations from the radiant light of God's truth. Hence, the danger is that one could possess hidden motivations for their rash responses. All the while, adamantly justifying their actions as necessary and justified. And what's really going on in the heart is arrogance. And he goes on to say it's called lying against the truth. What's that? <coughs> when someone is not being truthful or putting off a falsehood in place of a lie, it's called hypocrisy. You're behaving hypocritically. And you don't have to be around church long to meet people or even around anyone long before you find out one of the major reasons why people have left the church a lot of times is because they cite the, the, the prevalence of a lot of hypo hypocrites within the church. And I, I understand that they have their, they can be off base in some ways and a lot of that, that uh, accusing fact. But the reality is, is it possible that some, of the Christ, some people are prevented from coming to church because they've witnessed Christians who are not consistent with the gospel they preach? and how they dealt with the relationships of their lives. Is that possible? I would say most likely it is. So the credibility of the gospel is at stake in your response to how you, how you respond to conflict. Thirdly, do, is your response according to divine wisdom or earthly wisdom? Is your response according to divine wisdom or earthly wisdom? And that's, James is going to contra contrast earthly wisdom from um, godly wisdom in the next uh, four verses here. This wisdom is not that which comes from, comes from above. Remember that wisdom he talked about in chapter 1, verse 5, the wisdom you could seek from God, he gives it from above. It comes down as a gift. Every perfect gift given from him without, there is it without, without there any shadow of turning. And you remember he says that in James chapter 1. He says that perfect wisdom that comes down from above, which is held in your hands by the word of God, he says, that wisdom that you're using is not that which comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. Wow. So your default settings are earthly, natural, demonic. How you feel and how you respond, if that's how you're reacting, is in place, place of your feelings and of your, of your initial reaction off the cuff, you are playing into this playbooks of your three greatest enemies, the world, the, the, the flesh, and the devil. You're not behaving in consistency with biblical wisdom. Contrastingly, let us examine what the results are from those who commit to a divine path for wisdom. In chapter 3, verse 17 through 19, listen to this. He says here, I'm sorry, 17 through 18, he says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, that's holy, that means unlike worldly wisdom, there's no defiling selfish motive. There's holy motive. The first and foremost quality of your commitment in, gui in guiding your personal conflict response is that you're not concerned foremost about winning the argument or winning the challenge. Your concern is about being a holy representative of Christ in the response. If we can understand that, you've discovered God's purpose for allowing the conflict to come into your life for the first, in the first place. God didn't design for us to live a conflict-free life. He didn't want you to live a conflict-free life. He wants to use conflict instead to bring about holiness and Christ-likeness. He says also that godly wisdom brings about purity. It brings about peaceableness. 
In fact, there's a close correlation between, I'll, I'll, I'll send you some of this later, but the close correlation with the Beatitudes here. Blessed are the peacemakers. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. So he's talking about purity, peaceableness. Your interactions aren't testy and demanding. You aren't seeking to put further strain on relationships. You aren't implacable, easily offended, too difficult to please. Okay, you have a peaceable response. Gentleness. There's, this is a difficult word to render in the English, but John MacArthur put it this way, and I like, I like what he said. Based on Matthew 5, 5, he says, a gentle person is humbly patient, patient with the person who finds fault with him. He submits to an dishonor and abuse and mistreatment and persecution. Wow. <laughs> I tell you, this is difficult. But the one who does this is a gentle person, knowing that the blessed are the gentle, the Bible says, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They are not quarrelsome, but correct in gentleness, those who are in opposition. They're open to reason, he goes on to say. They're full of mercy. A man or woman who possesses godly wisdom deals in mercy because they realize that God decided that if he's going to transform sinners, he transforms them not through meeting a heavy punishment and penalty upon them. He transforms sinners by levying mercy and abundance upon them. He meets conflict with mercy and tenderness and a gentleness. That's, that's, that's astonishing when you think about it. If you want to see things change in the conflicts of your life, take a different attitude of mercy, full of mercy. Who's learned that God transforms sinners not by punishing them, he transforms them by forgiving them. That sounds so radical, doesn't it? And counterintuitive. Oh, they're full of good fruits. They're unwavering. Without, you could look at that list and say, is my response is, if a movie critic was watching the last five interactions of my, my exchanges with this person, if a movie critic was watching that, what would be their review of that interchange? Would they be saying things like, oh, he was reasonable. He was gentle. He definitely exhibited holiness. <laughs> I don't know that he would. So... These are the types of things we want to think about. So I'm going to ask you a sensitive question. It's a, it's a sensitive one, but one you've got to answer for, in light of what we've just learned. Take stock of your relationships for a moment and evaluate the ones that right now are in your mind that are mired in tension and disagreement and dispute and there's been an offense. Think about that for a moment. And as you personally evaluate the state of these relationships, I want you to be willing to ask yourself, whether you have subscribed to earthly wisdom or divine wisdom in your role in each of these relationships. And as far as it depended upon you, and as far as it was dependent upon you, have you sought to live peaceably with each one of those persons? Or would you have to admit that it's possible that the disorder and the dysfunction, I use that word carefully, of these relationships the strained, broken relationships with a spouse or a severed relationship with children or tense relationships within the family, that irritation you experience with your boss, that hostility you feel towards a coworker or a parent, the tumultuous dynamics of those relationships, could it be that some of the difficulty in those relationships result from your earthly wisdom, motivated from a heated moment of passion, a response that was not in alignment with godly wisdom, self-oriented choices, unreasonable desires, or something like that. And you say, well, I understand 
Nate, but it's not that simple. It's really not that simple. I, there ha things have come to be in the state that they are by a long story of tragic, uncontrollable events that were beyond my ability to control. And I respond the best way I could. And I certainly can't be at fault for all of these problems in my life or all these conflicts. And I, there's probably some room for that, to be honest with you. I'm not saying that you're entirely at fault for the disorder and dysfunction. But, but what I want you to consider is the point of this passage is that have you sown seeds of peace in each of those relationships? Whether you could have, have you made a diligent effort to make peace in hopes of a fruitful harvest? In other words, are you showing commitment to divine path of wisdom, evidenced by purity, peaceableness, a reasonableness? Is your posture open and ready to make restoration and as far as you can? Uh, to live out the truths of the gospel which have radically transformed your life? Or does whatever keeping peace from pervading these relationships have anything to do with you? And that, if, if it does, that's, that's what I want to challenge this morning, is that it's time for you to give consideration to this. There's two paths, godly wisdom or earthly wisdom. Uh, I'm well over time here, but this, week, this, this class is going to hopefully give you some spiritual priorities to work on week to week. Um, four G's of peacemaking in this book. I would encourage you to grab the book if you have a chance and you're looking for some summer reading. This will be an immense benefit to you. Uh, don't replace your biblical reading, your Bible reading for this. You know, re read this alongside your scriptures, uh, but it will be immensely helpful. There are four G's to peacemaking. We'll explain these in the weeks ahead. Uh, our next week, um, planning to do, I think Mark Henry will be doing the next one. Jacob's doing, oh yeah, Jacob's doing the next one, right. That's what I have up there. If I'd read my own writing here, or my own thing. And then Mark will have the next two after that. So we're well under our way, well in our way here. I think it will be immensely helpful. One of the things I'd love to see come as a result out of this is that we increase more people helpers in our church. More people who can help others in conflict. And not just be a listening ear and a sympathetic, oh, I'm so sorry you're having those kinds of troubles. But to say, you know what? Here's how you should respond biblically in that situation and give biblical advice and counsel that can hopefully transform the interactions of that, that conflict. Families will be stabilized. You know, families are always in, wrecked by conflict. We need biblical help, don't we? Fewer disgruntled members, people leave the church all the time because they can't find ways to make peace. Well, wouldn't it be great if we had a church family that could help us with that? Uh, church growth helps our shepherds. They are constantly mired up with helping sheep who are caught in struggles like this. You could be useful to the church in helping us be peacemakers. And uh, let's look at this, just try to give ourselves to equipping ourselves better for that for this summer. Lord Jesus, thank you for the privilege of this. Thank you for help us to behold the cross, to look there and see for us the template of what is a peacemaker, the one who seeks the hostilities between God and man, who brought peace eternal peace to us, to those who repent and, and, and confess you as Lord and Savior. I pray that you'll help us now as we go to service, guide us as we worship you, and help, help us to bring praise and glory to you through our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.